Pray with me just for a moment. We're going to be in Numbers 15 and 16, basically doing part two of last week's, but really ultimately it is a it is a sermon in its own right. Pray with me just a moment. Mighty God of heaven, God of time past and present and time to come, God who has ordained every man's days, Lord, may we be tender-hearted today as we trust in you to meet our needs, to give us wisdom and discernment by your Spirit. Fill our hearts with faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and equip us for the days that are upon us, Lord. Oh, Lord, open our eyes and hearts to your word. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, we we very briefly looked at a small section of Numbers chapter 15, and we looked at a little bit more detail in Numbers chapter 16. And if you recall much of, of what we were looking at last week, um, one summary statement we could make, and, and just to kind of give you a, a place to begin your thinking in today's sermon, the deceived sinner will die. The deceived sinner will die. And we were thinking about the subject of deception last week. It was one in a, a little bit of a series we've been doing on Satan and deception. Um, so looking re- real quickly here at Numbers chapter 15, I'm going to read 35 to 41 put you and I in a context of how to be thinking about the the remaining section here in chapter 16. So chapter 15 at verse 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And this was the man um, who had been found collecting kindling on the Sabbath day. And at least in the context of the of the Torah, in, in the context of you and I, in, in our reading of the giving of the law, this is the first major breach of God's law in the congregation is told him, told to stone him with stones outside the camp. And then verse 36, So, as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread in the tassels. Of the corners, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now down at chapter 16 and 1 to 3, where it said Korah 
the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and that's the important connection. You see how Korah is connected to Levi, and that's one of the main 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is the tribe in charge of the tabernacle, in charge of the service of the tabernacle. Levi, with, it says, two, two other men, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pileth, sons of Reuben. So these men are from this other tribe, Reuben. They took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. So keep that in context. What we're reading here, it says, you guys take too much upon yourselves. All of the congregation is holy. You have to see this in light of how 15 ended. 15 ended with Moses and Aaron delivering the, the, the command and, and, and the word of God that these men needed to be put to death. And so here's Korah, here's Abiram, here's Dathan, and here's the, the, the complaint, right? All of the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And as we were studying through this and working our way through this last week, I suggested to you, and I I, I asked you to consider that Korah is you. You and I are Korah. As we try to understand and read this ancient text of Korah and his rebellion, how does it apply to us? How do, we, how do we understand this? And today we're going to continue this thought a little bit more. I'm, I'm pretty sure maybe none of us take this super seriously that Korah could be us, could be me. Um, Korah seems especially prideful. He seems especially ambitious. Um, and so maybe we don't see ourselves in Korah or Korah in us. Um, even if you do have some of Korah's uh, offense toward Moses and Aaron, if you feel a little bit of, of offense toward God's uh, expectation that men would be so extreme in keeping his laws, if, if you have a, a little bit of that in you, you still probably wouldn't rise up against Moses and Aaron. I, I know your culture well because I'm in it. And there's something in our culture now that would prevent us from rising up against Korah. And, and there are two rules governing what would keep you and I from, from rising up and standing against Korah and Aaron. What, what is that? We have two rules. One of the rules is nice. We're nice. We're also politically correct. In, in our culture, we really, you really struggle with taking a stand against a crowd in your culture. It causes conflict and problems. And so that's one chief reason why even if you had a little bit of Korah's offense toward God, you probably would just sit quiet. You probably would just 
decide not to say something. So this is a little bit of how we are not like Korah. But I do want you to keep reading with me and really think with me to see how you might be like him. Or where are you in the text? How is this passage of scripture meant to speak to you and I and understand ourselves and the Lord Jesus? Because I believe if we read this carefully, you're going to see light being exposed on your soul that should draw you more closely to Christ. You should be drawn more powerfully to the Lord Jesus. I want to help you see that in the passage here. So now, think with me just for a moment. Think about the progress of thought in Korah's mind. This man who's directly related to Moses and Aaron. They're cousins, as you recall. The Moses and Aaron are also in the tribe of Levi. They're, they're relatives. How did Korah's mind get to what finally we hear and see? What we hear and see in Korah is an out loud declaration of his opposition to both Moses and then Moses interprets back to him his opposition to God. Moses is the one who tells Korah, you're not just resisting me, you're actually resisting God himself. How did Korah do this? What, it, what happened to Korah for that to happen, for, for Korah to be angry at Moses? And then look a little bit further, think about this. Not only Korah, but two other men from another tribe. Okay, And then... As we keep reading, as we recall this text, not only that, but there's now 250 more individuals who are with those two men of Reuben and with Korah of Levi. How did this progress of, of thought and emotional reaction toward Moses and God come about? This is where I believe we're going to have a little bit more ease in seeing ourselves in here. What did Korah, and then the two, and then the hundreds, what did Korah charge Moses and Aaron with? What did they charge them with? What was their accusation? The first one was, you've taken too much upon yourselves. So they, they accused them of asserting themselves. They accused them of taking something upon themselves, a, a place of leadership, a place of influence. They said, you guys have taken this upon yourselves. That's the first charge. Moses, are you claiming to be priest and prophet? Moses, you're claiming to speak for God? What is their beef really about? What, what are they irritated with Moses and Aaron are you saying we are required to obey God through your words are you saying that your words are, are God's words and we're required to obey those words the, the crowds who are, are kind of down a, 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 a chain or a flow of thought that's been going on in their minds and their hearts is 
is mad and in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Their claim to be prophet and priest and the words that they are relaying that puts each one of them in an obligation to obey God. And in their minds, and and you need to think here, when someone is saying, this is how you are to obey God, where's the rub? Where's the challenge? Where, Where do you find yourself saying, wait a minute, who says? What happens in my heart and in your heart in this kind of chain of command and this explanation of this rule that Moses and Aaron have said, this is God's word. These are God's words. This is what is expected of you. <clears throat> Korah's offense is one thing, as in, or as if to say, what, what Korah felt and what Korah began to first think in his mind, and that's where it started. Korah had something happening in his mind toward Moses, toward Aaron, toward the situation, What was going on in his mind and heart is not the same thing that was going on in the hearts of the other two and then the hundreds. Why do I say that? Well, because each of you and I kind of choose our little nuances of of our flavor of complaints. You and I, we we don't grab 100% of, 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 of this guy's thoughts. In other words, if you've been attending church here for six months or a year or three years, you'll say, well, I don't agree with everything he says. And, and you kind of, you're, you're, you've staked out your little spots where you find yourself in agreement and, and other areas where you think Mike has gone a little too far. Each person in, in our own, and I'm going to just say it's our, our sinful ways in most cases, we just tend to do this. We're very individualistic in the way we, we deal with information, even with the way we deal with God's word. Each person's response to Korah and then Abiram and and Dathan, each person had what I'm going to call nuanced unbeliefs. And I'm going to explain this here. Nuanced unbelief. As in, we don't totally believe that Moses and Aaron are God's prophet and priest. We don't totally believe those words. We don't totally believe that God is the one who requires us to put people to death. We don't believe. We, we've got little areas where we, we take issue with that. This is in our human nature. Do you realize that's in your human nature? And we're, we're going to get down to you. I, I'm hoping to help you understand that your human nature resists and is opposed on a regular basis to the revelation of God. We find ourselves pushing back against it. And this is actually where Korah completely failed. And then, this is where the hundreds following him, and now I'm going to give you a little inside scoop, thousands. This is where thousands failed to bring their own hearts under the authority of God. This is a story about man's failure to be gratefully submissive to God's authority. And you know why we do this? It's because of your sin nature. You do not like God's authority. And generally it's compartmentalized. 
Generally, you have some areas where you think it's fine, but you have other areas where you don't like it. And this is a story of you and I and our rejection of God's authority and what this results in. It's called unbelief. Unbelief is rooted either in your ignorance of God's words. Sometimes unbelief is rooted in your ignorance of God's words. In other words, you can disobey God and not even know that it was a rule, right? Could you disobey God and not know it was a rule? If you go and read Numbers this afternoon, there's there's a half of a chapter, and I think it's about a chapter 13 of Numbers, chapter 12, chapter 13. There's a whole set of instructions on what you must do to atone for the sin of unintentional sin. In other words, when you didn't intend to, you didn't even know it was a sin, you still must bring an offering to God for that kind of sin. Now, you're thinking, that's pretty tight. That ain't right. That's expecting too much. How could God hold somebody accountable for rules that they didn't even know were rules? And the reason you're thinking that is because of your sin nature. We cannot help but resist those kinds of rules. The first time you read, or maybe you've never read it, the first time you read that instruction in in the Old Testament that said, here are the rules for atoning for sin that were unintentional sins, you're like, wait a minute. How in the world could could we be responsible for, for keeping rules that we don't even know are rules? Maybe you never thought that, but that's what happened in my heart. And this is a story about us. So sometimes our unbelief is rooted in ignorance of God's words. Sometimes our, 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 our sin in this way is a result of the natural offense that is in our hearts. Sometimes God's rules just offend you. They, they, they just come against you and you're just like, wow, I just, that just can't be right. And we struggle with these things. This is a story about Offense to God's words. Offense to God's words. John chapter 5 and verse 46. The Lord Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. John 5, 46. The Lord Jesus says to this crowd of people, He says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me. And you know how many of them stopped Approving of the Lord Jesus at the end of that sentence, about 95% of them, as soon as he said that, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. Right there, they're like, you're a lunatic. He goes on to say, Moses wrote about me. Now, did you know how to read Moses and hear Christ? Can you read Moses and hear Christ? This is what we're doing in Numbers chapter 16. He says, if you believe him, you should believe me. He wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Their offense is his words. Their offense to Christ in Moses' day is an offense at Christ. In Christ's day, it's an offense at Christ. They don't like the words. They don't like the teachings. They're offended at the teachings of God. Number 16, verse 3. We've read it already. Look at what it says again. 
They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves. All the congregation is holy. Every one of them. The Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Are these men indignant with Moses or are these men indignant against God? I think you can answer that question. Who are they indignant against? Well, they think they're indignant against Moses. But indeed, they are indignant against God. Because Moses is saying God's words. Moses is asking them to obey God's instructions. They are indignant at God. Since Moses is the speaker of the words, they now hate him. The preacher who will preach to you God's words that are offensive to you, you feel irritated with. Now, sometimes you've got to do some work. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe the preacher you're listening to is wrong, and he's a bad teacher. But we're not reading about bad teachers in Moses. We're reading about a faithful prophet, a true prophet of God who is speaking God's words. And this is what offends them. What was it that happened in Korah's mind that began to turn him away from Moses and Aaron and God? What happened in Korah's heart and mind that that thing began to take place? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Unbelief began to sour Korah's attention to God. It began to change Korah's heart toward God and to God's words. And then it had help. In other words, the, your, your initial response to the things of God that offend you and Korah, Korah's offense is, is the very first thing that would have happened in his mind and his heart. But then there are also instincts in your heart, and, and I'll relabel that sin nature. There are instincts in Korah's heart that is the sin nature that also begin to pour gas on the fire. And this is what drove Korah away from Moses and Aaron and God. It's unbelief. Unbelief doesn't mean that you don't think God exists. Now, in, in the most shallow way, that's what we think unbelief means. How do, If we ask Korah, Korah, do you believe in God? What does he say? He says, of course I believe in God. You ask the crowds who are angry at Jesus, don't you believe in God? What do they say? They say, of course we believe in God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Kind of a lunatic doesn't believe in God, they ask back. So unbelief, the kind of unbelief we are normally reading about in the Bible is not, does God exist or not? It isn't asking that question. What unbelief is has to do with God's words. What does he say? What does he expect of men? What does he require of you? This is in the roots. This is where unbelief lives. Unbelief is cool toward 
God's words. Unbelief is offended at God's words. Sometimes unbelief is simply not certain as to how you are to interpret and understand God's words. Unbelief is unclear or immature or foggy. Unbelief has muddled views of things. Unbelief is content in being unaware of the depths of God's words. Unbelief can be like uh, chronically ignorant. So when the person says, yeah, of course I believe God. It's all those teachings. It's all those doctrines. It's all that stuff. Everybody just gets messed up there. Many, 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 many men and women over the centuries are, well, I'm willing to believe God's God, but after that, it's just too hard. How do you know the Bible hasn't been changed a hundred times? How do you know that pastor's right and that pastor's wrong? Oh, who can figure it out, they say. They throw up their hands. That's unbelief. If all you can say is, yeah, I know God believes that God exists, but after that, who knows? That is, that is no belief. That is no faith. Sometimes unbelief is simply like a childlike knowledge of God. Think about this for a second. It's unbelief in its immaturity. When, when, a, when a little kid doesn't want to eat his vegetables, or when a little kid doesn't want the treatment that is required for his sickness, he doesn't, like, I can hardcore identify with not wanting to eat my spinach when I was a kid. If, if, if we had spinach, it was boiled until it was this mushy, terrible thing, and it had a bad taste to me, and so I could put it in my mouth and take a huge glass full of milk and swallow it without chewing it so I didn't have to taste it. I really didn't like it. And so what would you say to the, the kid who's just like, okay, I'm gonna, uh, he's going to obey his parents, puts it in his mouth, swallow it without letting it touch your tongue. What? Or take your kid to the clinic, needs a shot, they start crying. And they're, they're fighting, they're resisting, they're, they're terrified of, of what's about to happen to them, right? Their problem is unbelief. But it's, it, it, it's, that's almost oversimplifying it, isn't it? The shot's going to hurt, and spinach is disgusting. Right? You see, you see how immaturity and, and unbelief and, and childlikeness works against you? You see how that works? And, and in a way, you would say, well, it's not their fault. Right? I can't help it if I don't like spinach. Or if I'm afraid of needles, I can't help it. That's what the sin nature is. Do you understand that? You cannot help but being infected by the sin nature. You can't help it. And when you realize that, 
When you realize that the sin nature is something that is alive in you like a child's fear of an injection, when you realize that, it gives you a different appreciation for salvation. It gives you a different appreciation even for faith itself. You must believe in the Christ. You must repent of your sin and put your trust in Him. The, the unbelieving doesn't say, no, you don't, because of what you think they say. They say no because they think of it like an injection for a little kid, or they think of it like having to eat something that you don't like. It just is completely illogical. That's what unbelief is. That's how unbelief works. Little children are driven by their untrained understanding. It is driven by their natural wants. Do you see that? People are driven by what they want and by what they don't want. It's, it is unbelief, but it's got deeper roots than unbelief, doesn't it? It's unbelief that comes from a nature of unbelief. Unbelief will often have little slices of the truth in it. It's undeveloped. It's, it's incomplete. So, in our story, Korah. What does Korah know about God? Korah, Korah could tell back to you, he rescued us from slavery in Egypt. God saved us us out of our slavery. But now you're asking us to stone that guy for collecting kindling on the Sabbath? You see how you go from belief and joy in your belief to a grim unhappiness. I don't want to throw stones at that guy and kill him. That's horrible. You see how you go from belief to unbelief like that? What, what is it someone has decided that they don't believe in? It's the words. It's God's revelation of himself by his words through the prophet, through the priest. It's unbelief. Not many days or hours after Korah's thoughts began to chew on this idea. There are 253 men with him who are irate with Moses and Aaron. His initial thoughts turned into now a pretty good-sized group of people who are opposing Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, you have taken too much upon yourselves Moses and Aaron, look at verse 32 again. Chapter 16, verse 32. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households. And all the men with Korah and their goods were going to... There, there's a group of people who are still mad after this happens. This verse 32 is when Korah gets killed. Korah and his uh, uh, immediate gang... By the time we get to verses 9 and 10 in our 
passage should go, go, go back the other direction again. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? Korah, you're mad at me, Moses. You're mad at Aaron. Korah, was it not enough for you that God actually has kind of designated you a special clan in the 12 tribes? What, what, what is Moses' initial response to Korah's complaint? Moses' initial response when, when, when Korah complains way back there in verse 3 is what? <clears throat> Listen to my reasoning, Korah. Listen to what God has done for you, Korah. Now here's where you can hear. Here's where you need to hear. What was Korah told to do? Korah, take your complaint, take the rebellion, take the unhappiness, and subject it to the light of truth. God has done something special for you, Korah. You have received a blessing, not a curse. You are a small number of people in all of the 12 tribes whose job it is to care for the tabernacle and the things of God. God hasn't overlooked you. God has honored you. Do you, this is for each individual of you, do you take your complaints, do you take your rebelliousness, do you take your offenses to God and reason with Him and let Him reason with you? Will you hear God when he says, listen, I'm God. I gave you the revelation of my word. You can read my word. You can know right from wrong. You can receive forgiveness from your sin by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Christ. Don't be offended. I said you were born a sinner. Don't be offended that I say my word is your light in life. Don't be offended. Be grateful that I offer adoption. I offer childhood. I offer life to those who come to me in repentance and put their faith in Christ. Do you reason with your complaints? Will you let God reason with you by your attention to His Word, by your diligently seeking His Word? Will you go to Him and let Him reason with you? This is what Moses and Aaron do after Korah's first complaint. You see that? Moses doesn't say, Shut up, you loser. We're going to take you out and stone you right now too. That's not what Moses did. Moses says, Listen. Listen, Korah, don't go on in your rebellion. Don't be mad at me and ultimately be mad at God. Don't be mad. Look at the great things God has done for you, Korah. Verse 11, Korah, Korah, listen. If you go on in this thought, if you go on in this rebellion, you're rebelling against God. Your complaints, your complaints, your little pieces of unbelief are complaints against 
God, you realize that? The things you have decided to write off in your practice of your faith, the areas of God's word that you don't like, the areas of God's life that you refuse to receive is a rebellion against God. You realize that? That's, that's verse 11. Our, our rebellion against the word, our, our rebellion against the preacher who preaches the truth of God's word is rebellion against God. God. Can you be reasoned with? Will you be reasoned with? The car, the heart of Korah. Korah should have grabbed himself by the collar. Korah should have grabbed himself by the fist. And when he saw in his heart unbelief winning the argument, when he saw in his heart anger and obstinance toward the prophet toward the priest, he should have told himself, Korah, shut up. Korah, repent. Korah, fear God and obey Him. Korah could have done that. He didn't. His, his sickness of unbelief spread bigger and bigger. And this is what happens in your life too. Your areas of unbelief your areas of complaint against God grow. They don't shrink. They spread. Korah had no humble knowledge of himself. Here's what it would mean to have humble knowledge of yourself. When you find yourself frustrated with God and His Word, it's because you don't know what you don't know. When you are disliking God's Word and when you're feeling resistance against Him, you don't know what you don't know. I promise you, if you could know everything there is to know about His Word, if we could know God perfectly, then every single jot and tittle we read, we would read with joyful hearts all the time. But we can't read it that way. We know God's Word imperfectly. We know God imperfectly. Korah would not humble himself. He would not own the fact that I don't know everything. He could have even gone to meet with Moses and Aaron and say, please help me out, remind me again, teach me again. How do I keep my own sinful heart in submission to God and His Word? He didn't do that. All he did was let his heart get inflamed in his rebellion. He wouldn't remember that months earlier, when Moses had left the wilderness, come into Egypt, that Moses had done miracles to demonstrate the fact that he was indeed a prophet of God. God gave him signs to show the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. He had no valid reasons in his recollection to doubt the authority and the office of Moses and Aaron. But he would not bring his heart and his mind to be subject to his own memories. In other words, you have sufficient testimony. If you've been going to church here for a few weeks, if you've been reading the Bible for a year or two, you have sufficient testimony to bring your own heart and your own mind into the subjection of God's Word and say, rebel, complainer, unbeliever, repent and believe. Or go to the pastor 
who teaches God's word faithfully and ask him. And you say, help me with this. My heart is struggling with this. I'm, I, I'm not in a good place of humble submission to God. Cora wouldn't do that. Cora just wouldn't do that. He wouldn't remember. He wouldn't go seek help. Verse 13. Although Korah knows who God is. Verse 13. He says, Is it a small thing? You have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. That you should keep acting like a prince over us. You see his disdain for what has happened in their lives. Exodus 7, 1 would remind you maybe of something that would be helpful for you to remember as as Korah is uh, venting and expressing his disdain for this, this one. He says, would you make us or would you be a prince among us? Look at Exodus 7, 1. And the people of Israel knew this. This was obvious to them. 7.1 The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. That means he's a prophet. When, When Moses opens his mouth to Pharaoh, he says, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Those, those offices are clearly understood offices. When somebody opens their mouth with the words of God, when the prophet speaks, your disagreement with the prophet is to disagree with God. Your argument with the prophet is an argument against God. And so Moses is being explained this by God himself. And Moses is told, when you go and speak to the Pharaoh and you speak my words to him, you will be as God to Pharaoh. And then Moses didn't want to speak himself. Moses wanted Aaron to do the speaking. And so God continues this this picture. Aaron will be your prophet. So Moses, tell Aaron. Aaron, tell the Pharaoh. This chain of authority is is uh, explained and sustained and, and Korah knows this. Korah's ongoing walk with sin, his ongoing being offended at God's word turned into this sin's ruling and dominating in his heart. He became ruled by this rebellious idea. He became dominated by this uh, resistance to Moses in Aaron, verse 26 in chapter 16, God judges him. 25, Moses and Aaron go and speak to Dathan and Abiram. Verse 26, he spoke to the congregation. He says, depart from the tents of these wicked men. And so there was likely hundreds of people, if not thousands of people in this section of, of the desert and Moses says everybody get away from where these men are living everybody back out get away from here <clears throat> depart from the tents of these wicked men touch nothing of theirs lest you be consumed in all of their sins so they got away from around the tents of Korah Dathan and Abiram Dathan and Abiram came out stood at the door of their tents with the wives sons the little children Moses 
said and, and explains. Moses begins to explain just because he kind of knew the hearts of men. He says, if God does this, then you'll know God is the one who has done the judgment. If God does something extremely unusual, if God's judgment appears to us in an unnatural unfolding of things, then you will know for sure that God is the one who puts these people to death and then the earth opens up. Korah, Dathan, Byram fall into some kind of chasm in the earth and, and these people and their families are put to death in a, in a custom-made earthquake of some sorts. Sin is a real powerful worker on our hearts. Sin is a uh, sin is a very effective deceiver of your heart and my heart. And I, I'm not saying that as a threat. I'm I'm saying it as a reality. You and I have to understand how how subject our own hearts are to to sin when it begins to stir. And it's easy to ignore the power of sin it's easy for us to to feel above it or or apart from it but look at look at what happens here at verse 41 with all of this stuff immediately in the minds of, of all of these tribes how this dramatic end of Korah and his main people are there very very dramatic end of them Verse 41 says, um, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you've killed all the people of the Lord. So the, the, the attitude and the opinion and the belief of, of Korah is now beyond them, even the day following God's putting them to death. Now that's a little bit hard for you and I to believe. You, you and I are probably all thinking who in the world would stay on Korah's side the day after the earth opens up and kills them all like that. How, how many of us would go, oh yeah, that's, I'm going to still be ticked off at God the, the day after that. So when we read this, that all of these people are now joining in the complaints of Korah and Abiram and Dathan, you and I are all saying that's just inconceivable. How in the world can that be? This is how sin works in our hearts. Sin is a really powerful persuader. You, you and I need to understand the sinfulness of our hearts. Don't read this crowd and go, what a bunch of idiots. I would never do that. Read this crowd and go, wow. The power of sin's deception is strong. It's effective. It's, it's, it's good at doing what it does, and it's in us. What happens? 41 to 45. The next day, the congregation complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened. When the congregation gathered against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, they kind of just glanced. They, they happened to notice the 
place where the tabernacle was, and it may very well have been kind of far away, because remember, they had been where, where Korah's family was put to death. Moses didn't live in the tabernacle, so it was off in a distance somewhere. They noticed it. Suddenly it says a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So God's response to this, it's a cancerous spread of sin that has taken place in the multiple tribes now. It's gone from hundreds now to some other number beyond that. And it's going to say in a few minutes that it's over 14,000 people get put to death here. All of these men and women have got their own little accusations and their own little offenses and their own things that are going on in their hearts and minds. And and hundreds and hundreds of people are mad at Moses and Aaron. Why? Because of the words. Because of the words that they have brought to the people that they say are God's words. And as God defends his own name, people are being judged and put to death. And the anger is getting worse and worse and worse among the tribes of Israel. Not a one of them, not a one of them has stopped to think, God has judged Korah and killed him. God has judged Abiram and killed him. God has judged Dothan or Dathan and killed him. And all the children of these people, not a one of them has stopped to think, am I going down the wrong road? Am I going against God's priest? Am I going against God's prophet? Not a one of them stopped to think. Now think about that. Think about this afternoon. How, how, how hungry and earnest are you seeking to know what's true? How earnestly are you seeking to know that you're actually walking in God's will or not? Moses and Aaron are not the issue. You know what Matthew 4.4 says? Lord Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness and his first temptation is to turn rocks into bread. A man who hasn't eaten for 40 days. Satan says, turn the rocks into bread. And what does the Lord Jesus answer back to the tempter? He says, man shall not live by bread alone. But on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, even when you are starving to death. Literally starving to death. But you shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites, the Hebrews in the in the wilderness, wouldn't take that concept to heart. They wouldn't think, God, what have you said? God, what have you done? God, what is your authority? God, who holds keys of life and death? God, what should we believe? They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They would only stand opposed to Moses and Aaron. These are men who are simply ruled by sin's appetite. 
And, and as I described that a moment ago, they are people who are ruled like, like, like a kid who doesn't want an injection or who doesn't want to eat a spinach. It's, it's their passions at work in them. It's their instincts at work in them that we call the sin nature. You see that? This is what's driving them. Now read. We're going to get to the end of this passage here. God says that I may consume them in a moment. What is God's intent with sinners? The wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. And God says, get away from them that I may consume them. And it says they fell on their faces. That would be Moses and Aaron. Verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and he ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So we put in the incense and made atonement for the people. There's a plague. That is, the death promised to sinners is now beginning to spread into the remaining numbers of this camp. Death is now on the move almost of its own accord by God's judgment. These are people who find death coming to them because of what had been going on in their own hearts. Because of their own unwillingness to humbly submit to God's word that had come to them by the prophet and the priest. Death is now coming out on a people because of sin in their own hearts and minds. Now, who are they meant to portray? Who are these people who have been overcome and overrun by their sinfulness? That's us. We are this crowd of people who have had a death sentence pronounced upon them. The plague of death is coming on these people. And what does Moses say? What is, come with me. And Moses is the voice of God. What does Moses command to be done to Aaron? Aaron, take the censer. Take the censer. The censer is the, it's, it's, it's an implement in the tabernacle where you take altar fire Put it in the in in the in the cup in this bronze thing, and then put the incense in the cup. Aaron, take the cup. How old is Aaron when he does this? How old is Aaron? He's like a hundred years old. The hundred-year-old man being instructed by his brother, who's just as old, Aaron, take the censer into the rebel people. Take the censer into this crowd who they all, by their own words, they hate us. Aaron's going into a group of people who despise him. Aaron is going to go do something that they might not die. Who does Aaron portray? Who is Aaron? He's Christ. Do you see it? Aaron's Christ. These people hate him. They're jealous of him. They despise him. They don't like his office. They don't like what he says about what they need to do. 
Aaron take the censer into the crowd of rebels. Moses tells him to do this. Revelation 5.8 says that the incense, okay, this is the end of the New Testament, right? The incense is the prayers of the saints. I'm going to talk to you a tiny bit about incense just for a second and give you a tiny bit more context. Aaron, take the censer, put the incense on it, take it in. The plague has begun. They're being killed. They're dying. Revelation 5.8 says the incense is the prayers of the saints. So there's one reference. The incense is the prayers of the saints in Revelation 5.8. Malachi 1.11, it's an aroma to signify the greatness of God's name. It's, it's a pleasing, beautiful smell in Malachi 1.11. God says, my, my, my incense is to be a, a remembrance of and a token of my great name in Malachi 1.11. In, in other words, in, in Malachi, the, the inference is this. When even a foreigner smells the smell of that incense, they're going to smell the smell of God and the people of God who are great and glorious. That's what the reference is to in Malachi 1.11. Aaron, go into this crowd who hates God right now and who has rejected God. Go into that crowd who is in the process of dying by his judgment and take the fragrance of the greatness of God. Take the fragrance of the worshiping saints of God. Take the great token of God's glory an aroma into this people who are being judged by God. Why is this aromatic smoke the thing that is going to somehow or another atone for the people? Ephesians 5.2. <clears throat> Listen to this one and look it up. Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Christian, walk in love. Live in love. Christian, live this way. As Christ lived, Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The life of Christ given in his sacrifice for sinners in Ephesians 5 is called a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what the incense is called multiple times in the scripture. A sweet-smelling aroma. What is this sweet aroma? What is this sweet smell? It's the humble, perfect man-servant of God, Christ. What is the sweet thing? What is the thing God desires in true worship? It's the love of the saints. It's the humble servitude of the saints. Aaron, take the smell, take the aroma of perfect saints into this crowd of people who is being put to death for their sinfulness. Aaron, take it in among them and atone for them. Aroma is an interesting word when you think about it. It, it the, An aroma has the ability to to evoke emotion from you. And there's another indication about what an aroma is in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Now, this is a very interesting reference to it. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 speaks about the aroma of the gospel. Okay? Listen to what it says. 
we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. And it's speaking about the apostles. We apostles are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Christians listening to the apostles, those who have heard the gospel offer of eternal life and forgiveness of sin, smell the gospel of Christ and we're like, hope, life, peace with God. The gospel is the great hope of men. It is a thing we hear with hope and joy. We are, he says, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. How can an apostle be an aroma like that? Because they're bringing the words of Christ. They're bringing the words of forgiveness of sin. They're bringing the words of eternal life. We are to God this great smell, he says. But listen to what he goes. To the one, he says in verse 16, we are the aroma of death leading to death. What does the unbeliever smell when he smells the aroma of Christ? He says, that stinks. He says, I hate that smell. An aroma brings a strong sensation to us. An aroma attaches somehow to both memory and and feeling for us. And so the one aroma of Christ to those who are perishing smells like death, but to those who hear the gospel with warm hearts and a longing for forgiveness and eternal life, it smells like the best thing in the world. An aroma of Christ The incense, the incense to God brings to mind God's promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, my promise to you is that in your seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. God's new covenant promise that he makes to Abraham is that the stony heart of men would be given soft hearts. The rebelliousness of men, the anger and hatred of men toward God would be restored to peace. Those who are in rebellion to God become children who love God and are heirs of righteousness with God. That that aroma that is carried among those dead people is a reminder to God, look God, these are people. They're sinners. They're rebellious. You made a promise that you would restore stony hearts. You would take these ones worthy of death and you would make them your people. You promised to bring the Christ to this people. In your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In your seed, Abraham, the Christ would come and the Christ would atone for sin. And take this sinful, rebellious people and make them righteous and holy people. In this aroma of death will be the aroma of life. Aaron grabs the censer and he walks into this crowd of, of, of dying men and women. Verse 47 says, Aaron took it. He took the censer as Moses commanded and he ran into the midst of the assembly. 
and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and he made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living. It's like he went right to the fence, right to the wall where where death is making its incursion. Think about Aaron's own boldness, his own faith in seeing there's just got to be corpses everywhere. A wave of death literally coming through the camp. And what what does Aaron think of that? He has a compassion for those who are dying. He sees them dying and he doesn't want them to die anymore. He knows that they were all mad at him and probably willing to kill him. Can you see Christ in Aaron? Can you see the love and the devotion of Christ to go into a people who hate him and bring atonement to them? Isn't it a sweet picture of the gospel? Isn't it a sweet picture of God's love for rebels? who won't bring their hearts into the subjection of his word, who won't search their hearts, who won't repent. Isn't it sweet that God's grace is so persistent? Wow. What an amazing picture of the gospel. Aaron stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. And now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. These are all people who, the ones who died, they would have said, every one of them, they would have said they know God better than you do. They left slavery in Egypt, seen incredible miracles done on their behalf. Their prophet and their priest, Moses and Aaron, certainly knew God more intimately than any preacher or any Christian you have known. They are a people who have been closer to God than anybody who's known him. And yet there was rebellion in all their hearts. And God's wrath was being unleashed against them for all of their own individual sins. And God extends mercy. He extends mercy by giving them Aaron, by giving you Christ. What an amazing, great gospel picture there is here. There's one mediator one mediator will turn away God's wrath, turns away ultimate judgment from your sin. And what's amazing is, is they had all already left Egypt. You know, some people have a weird view of the gospel. Once I'm in, I'm saved. And now I'm on cruise control. I'm a Christian. I left Egypt. I believe God. But where did unbelief kick in? How many days or months later was unbelief underneath the dying of these men and women? Where where were they at in their faith? You see, this is a story about somebody who knows God but quit believing Him and would no longer follow Him. 
This is a story about people who know God but are rebellious. This is a great story to drive you to Christ and the great love of Christ, the great compassion of God towards sinners so that you would receive his words. Not just the words that got you out of Egypt, but the words that keep you in fellowship with his people, the words that keep you at peace and in fellowship with God. To know God is to walk with Him, not to rebel against Him. You see that? This is a story about people who know Him and love His words and walk with Him. You see that? You see the gospel here in in number 16? Isn't it glorious how God's word is just full of these pictures of Christ for us? Wow. Praise the Lord for this chapter. Let's just take a moment and and thank the Lord. Spend a moment of time just worshiping Him in our hearts. Great God, we thank You. We praise You. Great uh, moments in the history of Your people are so important for us to understand our own hearts. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be truth seekers. Help us to be hungry for Your Word and, and to search it and to seek it for what we don't know yet, Lord. We want to know what we don't know yet. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who served right into the jaws of his enemies, people who let sin rule in their hearts. And may we be humble lovers of truth, dear God. May we be found unopposed to all the words of Christ. In his name we pray, Lord. Amen.